When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. got a little bit of everything this week. Like what you ask? Well, there's British royalty, financial crimes, spies, ballet shoes, a mysterious fire, suspicious hair gel, sugar plum fairies, and horror stories. I'm Lisa Cherkovich, and I'll tell you how it all fits in this chapter 193 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. You might think that a long-lost Tudor royal money laundering, and a couple of modern-day spies have nothing to do with each other. But you'd be wrong. Author Jane Elizabeth Hughes draws on her finance background, as well as a real-life mystery, to bring two people together in her latest novel, The Long Lost Jewels. If a mystery novel, a historical novel, and a spy novel had a baby, I think it would result in your book. (laughs) You have to tell me, what was the jumping-off point for this story? Oh, gosh, there are so many jumping off points for a story. Sometimes it's like everything that you see, like a stranger on a train or someone, um, you know, talking on a cell phone and waving their arms around. All of these things can sort of work their way into a story. But I think that the, the biggest inspiration for me was reading a book about Queen Catherine Parr. And she was Henry VIII's last wife, the one who survived him the only one who survived him, because he beheaded two of them. And Catherine Parr, when King, when Henry finally passed on, by the time that he passed on, he was so huge that it took a crane to lift him onto his horse. And poor Catherine had to um, clean these oozing sores on his legs every day. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't talk about that. But it was it was not what she wanted out of her life. So as soon as he died, she married the dashing, handsome, young Tom Seymour, indecently soon, became pregnant by him, had a baby with him, and died of childbed fever. And Tom, her husband, was executed for basically being an idiot when the baby was seven months old and the baby was left orphaned. So there was a footnote in this biography that I was reading, say just a little footnote saying the baby disappeared from history and she is assumed to have died in infancy. And that kind of got me started. I thought, what if she didn't die? What if she survived? I mean, her mother survived Henry. Maybe the little Mary Seymour survived. And then then what if there's someone living today who might be able to trace their ancestry back to to this baby? I don't know if you saw in the news recently, there was a story that they found Leonardo da Vinci's 
living descendants. So I thought maybe they could find this baby's living descendants. And that was kind of what started me off. I love the the genealogy that you've created for for Mary Seymour and and her current day descendant. And I I don't want to talk too much about it because it would give away one of the surprises of the book. But it's this great. I love how you kind of go through history and you've attached all these things about what these people have done. And let's just say uh, it's kind of secretive. (laughs) <laughs> very secretive, which is one of the things that works for me in writing the book, because I'm kind of a secret keeper. And that helped to find its way into both Amy and Leo. And just like them, it's been a long kind of challenging journey for me to let loose some of my secrets. So that just worked its way into their characters in a way that felt very real to me. So we have Amy. We meet her when she's in this awful office job that she doesn't really like. She doesn't really like her colleagues. But I have to tell you, I think some of the lightest moments of the book come from her interactions in the office, in the meetings with her really like young, even younger than millennial colleagues that she has to deal with and and to make her time more bearable. And I just have to like I as I was reading that, I, I was thinking to myself, haven't we all been in an office situation where we just can't wait to get out of it? Yes, absolutely. And here's a funny thing about those scenes with her colleagues. So when my editor first read the book, she said, uh, you know, the only thing is, she said, some of the scenes with the office people are kind of over the top. They just don't feel possible. You know, it's so over the top. And I said to her, those are the only scenes I have ever written in a book that are absolutely true, absolutely <laughs> drawn from real life. So she said, okay, then. <laughs> and then since then, I've talked to other people who have been in offices like that with, as you say, very young, hip, cool, self-confident, uh, I'm not sure quite how to describe them, people, and have described very similar scenes. Like the team building and the, well, I'm not sure that you're a good fit kind of thing, meaning that you might be five pounds overweight, which is absolutely unacceptable. So those actually come from experiences. I want to talk so much about who Amy is, but I really, like I said, I I don't want to give away the core of her character. And right. she's this person who, in the beginning of the book, she gets mis, uh, mistaken for, for somebody else by this right. dashing uh, Oxford professor who she's not quite sure about. And he keeps saying, well, you must be this this person, Jules. And he keeps calling her Jules. And, right. and you start to, as, as you've written the book, you start to wonder, like, is he crazy or is she hiding something or are they both hiding something? And it, it, was, right. it was just so enjoyable page to page to to keep trying to figure out what this mystery that, that you had presented before us was. Well, I really appreciate your saying that because there, there is, as you say, there is kind of a couple of big reveals in the book uh, and working my way up to those reveals was challenging, but also such a fun process because I wanted to drop enough hints along the way that the reader doesn't say, I could never have known that. I mean, that's how this is just coming out of right field. 
because I resent when authors do that. I mean, I once read a mystery where the um, the villain was revealed in the final chapter, and we never met him before. We never heard of him before. It was like he dropped out of the sky, and I kind of resented that. I want to unravel some clues along the way. So I wanted to give clues enough that people could work at unraveling, but at the same time, I don't want them to figure it out on page one. Parenthetically, in my next book, The Spy's Wife, which comes out in, in June of 2022, the big reveal is actually on page one. Ooh. And so that's a whole different approach to it. But this, but in, in Jules, I really wanted to give the readers kind of a fair playing ground, you know, where they could think and unravel, but not be sure of anything. As you talk about your writing process, I know that you didn't start out as as a writer, as a, even as a fiction writer. I know you have several uh, nonfiction books under your belt. What's your advice to, to people who want to go down that path? Oh, gosh, I think that there's some, some really important things about writing. As you say, this is very much a second career for me, though I always, always, my entire life wanted to write novels, always. And... I would say a few things. The first and probably most important is to keep writing. You get better at it as you go along. The first and second novels that I wrote never never got published. And with the benefit of hindsight, probably didn't deserve to get published. I didn't have that clarity of hindsight at the time, of course. And it was just pure slog to keep going. But keep going because you really get better at it. The other most important piece of advice that I would give is to understand that writing is a job, not a hobby. I, I Since I published my first novel, uh, that was Nanny Land, which Simon & Schuster published in 2016, a lot of people have said to me things like, oh, I, have, I want, really want to write a book too, and oh, I've been working on this book. And as I listen to them talk, I know they're not going to do it because it's not a hobby. Hobbies are fun and relaxing, and you do it when you feel right and feel like it. And writing a book is actually work. It can be fun along the way. I mean, in fact, it's fun a lot of the time along the way. But also, a lot of the time, it's just work. Uh, when I was writing Jules, I suddenly realized there was no climax, no moment when everything sort of comes together and the reader gets to be really at the sky of pure pleasure, you know. And I spent a few weeks feeling sorry for myself and read and writing really bad stuff. And then a former banking colleague of mine got invited to spend a week on her client's yacht in Marseille. And bang, there it was. There came the yacht scene. And I, you know, I erased the terrible stuff I'd been writing and banged out the scene and just felt great about it. But you have to set aside a certain amount of time every day to write, whether it's good or bad, you know? And if you hit what they call writer's block, keep going. And you can always go back and erase the bad stuff later. You know what I like about your story, too, is that you're a a good example of it's never too late. Like, if it's always something you thought (laughs) about doing and, you know, maybe you didn't have the time to dedicate to it or you think you can't do it. It really isn't too late. You can, if, you, if you're if you disciplined enough, you can sit down and write a book. That's, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate your saying that. It's, it's not too late. I mean, my first book was published when I was 60 years old. My first novel, I mean. 
um, because you're right, I wrote, um, oh gosh, eight or nine uh, non, you know, business books related to my day job as an international finance professor. And I will say that those writing, having written those books, helped me a lot when I sat down to write my first novel because I had a process. I, you know, I, I knew how to do it. I knew how to do the outline. I knew how to work a certain amount of time every day. I had a process. And it also, of course, yeah, I fed into my money laundering subplot <laughs> because I, you know, I taught my students how to launder money for many years now. So it, it actually, uh, even though this is my, my second career sort of, uh, and it's, and I had a day job for 40 years, the day job helped me move into this in ways that I never would have expected. So I guess that's another piece of advice that I would give people is to, you can always take stuff from your day job and, or your, your first job and put it into your novel. It's, it's always good to write about some things that you know about, like I knew about money laundering. So why not put it in the book? And it works out so well in this book. It did fit really well. And, you know, it's at the very beginning of this, you asked me where I sort of got my jumping off point. And the truth is that I had like 400 jumping off points. And one of them was thinking about money laundering and how often that happens through private banks, through wealth management, like the one that Amy works for. And it occurred to me that I could work that in. I've read that you're a voracious reader. I read World War II historical fiction nonstop for about six months until I couldn't bear it any longer. Right now, I'm reading mysteries. And I just reread, actually, for about the 20th time, Mary Stewart's The Ivy Tree, because that has the best reveal I've ever read in my entire life in a book. I still get chills when I get when I think about that point. So I reread that because I was thinking about jewels and everything. Um, but right now, I'm actually sort of reading my way through the V.I. Warshawski mysteries, Sarah Peresky. She writes a series of mysteries set in Chicago with a private investigator named V.I. Warshawski, who's a very interesting character. And I'm just kind of reading my way through them. I love that. I love that you're able to to keep doing all that reading while also doing your own writing. I would be a crazy person if I wasn't reading. I really <laughs> would. And I often have several books going at once because I keep a Kindle in my pocketbook for when, God forbid, I'm like standing in a line or something and I don't have a book. So I pull out that the book that's on that Kindle. And on that Kindle is um, Janet Ivanovich. I don't know if you've ever read the Stephanie Plum Mysteries. Mm-hmm. But they are fabulous. I mean, it's not war and peace, but they're fabulous. I think she does such a great job with it. So I have one of those on that Kindle in my pocketbook. And then I have another book, another Mary Stewart, actually, that I've just started on my other Kindle. And then I have a book in my beach bag. And then I have a hardcover book downstairs. I don't know how you do it. I can read uh, like two different kinds of books. Like I can read a a fiction book and maybe a nonfiction book at the same time. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but the you know I I am in awe of your ability <laughs> to, to read four books simultaneously. 
Oh, it's not an ability. It's a necessity. It's a necessity <laughs> of life. Oh, but by the way, I forgot to mention, I guess, book number five is when I drive, when I'm in my car, that's when I read nonfiction because I listen to the nonfiction on audiobooks. So right now I'm actually almost done with Michael Wolf's book, Landslide, about the final days of the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. And that's just fascinating. So I pull into my garage and I want to sit there and listen to more of the book. <laughs> it makes you want to get back in the car and keep driving. It does. It does. So one final question. I want to jump back into uh, into the long, the long lost jewels. It felt like you kind of had the making of a series. Are we going to have more Amy Leo adventures? I did end it that way, didn't I? Uh, I, I did put in that, that ending. And um, I, I can't say what it is, of course, but you know what I'm talking about. I do. And yes, the ending, I think, does open the door for another book. I happen to love series. I, I, I love meeting the same character over and over and over again. And that's partly why I love the Stephanie Plum books and the V.I. Warshawski books and other books like that. I really, I get so excited when a new book in a series comes out and I get to meet those people again because I got very invested in them. So, yeah, I'm thinking that I might write another Amy and Leo book. And I even have the idea for it which might have something to do with King Richard III of England, who is, was for long, many years considered to be an evil, evil, evil person who murdered his two nephews in the Tower of London. And I happen to be one of these weird people. I'm a member of the Richard III Society, and we believe that Richard was a great king and certainly didn't murder his nephews. So Amy and Leo might delve into that mystery. I love that this, the, the old, you know, uh, English monarchy will also make a reappearance. And that makes sense considering Leo's Oxford background and his studies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, like Leo, I've always been fascinated by uh, the Tudor, by the Tudor Queens. I, I don't know where it came from. I've always been fascinated by them. So I read books and, um, Actually, when I was researching jewels, I wrote to the keeper of the Tower of London and the uh, head curator at Sudley Castle, which is Catherine Parr's own castle where she lived when she was expecting her baby. And they were wonderful. I, I went to London and they each of them took me through, gave me a private guided behind the scenes tour and talked to me about my ideas about the book and what is possible and what isn't possible because I didn't want to contradict facts, you know, and the best moment came when the head curator at Sudley Castle, at Catherine's Castle, said to me, I always believed that child might have survived in this wonderful British accent, and I was in love with him. (laughs) What more validation do you need than that, right? (laughs) Exactly. Well, we've been talking with Jane Elizabeth Hughes. The book is The Long Lost Jewels. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you. I loved your questions. This was really fun. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. 
Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. For a lot of people, their first introduction into ballet is that seasonal classic, The Nutcracker. I mean, what's not to like about sugar plum fairies, wooden soldiers, and a rat king defeated, and lots and lots of tutus? But behind all that pink, there's a darkness. And it's that part of the ballet world that Megan Abbott explores in her new thriller, The Turnout. Your past books have explored competitive spaces usually reserved for women. And I, for one, am thrilled you've finally turned your eye to the world of ballet. What drew you to this, you know, pink hothouse, as you called it? I think like a lot of women, I had those, you know, childhood fantasies of being a ballerina. Um, I did try to take ballet and it it sort of occupies a special place, I think, for a lot of women. Uh, Their first ideas of womanhood and uh, this ethereal grace we wish we could sort of walk into. So I I knew I would one day write about it. It was just a matter of what the story would be. Um, And I was glad I finally found one. And I think, you know, I'm definitely one of those little girls who was like that. I dabbled in ballet for for more than a few years and we are all we all see the outside of it and and how graceful it is and how beautiful it is and how light it is but really when you peel that back there is really something dark at its core and I think you really do get at that in this book Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, that that's always been one of the fascinations for me. I mean, sort of the perfect example is the ballet dancer's feet, which, you know, when they when they take off those gorgeous point shoes and you see the, the, the toll that, that, that dance takes on them, um, it's sort of a perfect symbol of, of the cost of all of that, that beauty. Um, it, it takes its toll. So the details in this book can't just have come from the couple of years you spent as a kid in ballet. So I'm guessing most of it is is a lot of research on your part. Yeah, I do love that part of it. You know, I sort of read all the ballet memoirs and uh, all the books about the Nutcracker and watched, you know, a lot of movies and documentaries. And, uh, and you know, the sort of great thing about uh, social media in this era is that there was so much on YouTube that you could sort of go inside the actual uh, ballet company and ballet studio rehearsals. So you have this sort of eagle eye or this sort of voyeurs peering into it. So that was sort of really invaluable to sort of get behind the scenes. How many times did you watch the Nutcracker? Oh my gosh, countless. <laughs> um, that one was always what stuck to me. I think for a lot of us, that's our first and for a lot of us, only ballet we ever see. And it it's very tied up with these notions of the of you know the rite of passage for a, for girlhood. So I, I've probably seen it forty times <laughs> over the years, and I never get tired of it. And I think it's safe to say that uh, some elements of that show are reflected in your larger story. Yes, it wasn't really till I read the original story that the Nutcracker is based on, this E.T.A. Hoffman story, um, this sort of, it's sort of a gothic fairy tale that I realized sort of how complicated and, and a little dark the themes of the, the story are. It is about this sort of passage into womanhood for a girl, and it's sort of treacherous and, uh, um, and enticing, the sort of um, enticements of adulthood, sort of drawing Clara, the heroine, into this sort of fantasy world. So once, once I really looked at deeper, I, th- I thought, mm, I, can, I can use this. This is something I can use. So pardon the pun, I've kind of danced around the story a little bit. 
But why don't you tell us what people can expect when they pick up the turnout? It's really about sisters. It's Dara and Marie, who are two sisters who run a ballet school they inherited from their mother. And their mother was a great ballerina. And they run it with Dara's husband, Charlie, who as a child was their mother's protege, a great dancer himself. And they really lived their whole life um, in ballet. They've never really um, left their family home. Um, They're very uh, close-knit trio. And um, there's a fire in the studio at the very beginning, no spoiler. Um, and they need um, to hire a contractor to renovate the studio for before their annual production of The Nutcracker uh, begins. And so they hire a contractor and he um, very charismatic and, and maybe a little more trouble than they anticipated. <laughs> I love that the the story itself is kind of written like a ballet because you have your, your three main characters and, and, and people who know something about ballet may recognize it as kind of like a, pro, a pas de trois. And then the characters kind of when you have them go off together, like you have them doing duets and then they, they come again again and it's all mixed up together. Were you, was that very intentional on your part? I wish I could say it was. I wish I could say I planned it all. It's sort of, it's sort of the one of the most fun parts of writing, I suppose, is how that stuff creeps up on you. I suppose unconsciously it gets in there because you're reading so much about about ballet. You're watching it. You're studying the intricacies of the moves and, and the pairings, and uh, inevitably that sort of takes its form in the way the the book itself was constructed. So that's sort of one of the happy accidents that you hope for. Was there anything during your research into this world of ballet that surprised you? Yeah, there was a lot, but one that really resonated is the, um, I mean, a lot of people might know that, you know, these point shoes that ballet dancers wear, that they, um, they, you know, go through many, many, many a week, that these shoes are kind of destroyed through the process of dancing. But I'd never seen how intricate the rituals were for preparing the shoes to put on the feet and how each dancer has their own technique for for doing that. Because essentially this, this is this beautiful shoe and it comes from this, you know, French fashion and it's exquisite. Um, and that before they can wear them to dance, they have to kind of break it down and make it a second skin for themselves. So they all, some of them use hammers and some of them use pliers and some of them light a match underneath and all these things to make it work for them. And I was sort of fascinated by that almost religious ritual of preparing the shoes. Right, because it's this whole idea that the shoe is an extension of the body, right? Exactly, exactly. And there should be, it should feel like that. And they should be able to control the control the shoe so much as if it were one their own organ. So I know I asked you how many times you've seen the Nutcracker. Just because we're having this conversation, is what's your favorite dance number from it? Well, it really is the Sugar Plum Fairies dance, which is, it's so ironic because Clara, the little girl, and it is sort of the hero, and it's the part everyone wants. But when you really look at the ballet, Clara kind of disappears um, in the second act. She's mostly just watching, but the Sugar Plum Fairy has this exquisite dance in it, and she has this enchantment. And it's that music that we all recognize from the Nutcracker that sounds like these sort of shimmering bells. And, um, you know, as a kid, that was sort of what I wanted as I went to be the Sugar Plum Fairy. <laughs> Did not get there even remotely. <laughs> I got to be a a snowflake and a toy soldier. <laughs> oh, that's not bad. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. It was it was a lot of fun. As 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 hard as ballet is, those are the the parts I guess that every little girl, every dancer really dream of is to be in a production like that. 
That's right, and that you could kind of ascend, right? You start off as one of the the party guests, and you sort of work your way up, um, and uh, hopefully to the to the shining glory. So I do think that that also makes it a rite of passage. That if you stick with ballet, one day you could be Clara. Before I let you go, I hear that the turnout is headed for the small screen. It is. It is. I've um, I've written the pilot now. It's it's um, it's to be a limited series, uh, which I guess is uh, is all the rage right now. So it will be so wonderful to have all the dance in it come to life. You know, trying to write about dance, I suppose, is like singing about architecture. But but the fact that we'll actually be able to see it is really exciting. And what's that process like for you? Because I know writing a novel is uniquely different from writing a screenplay. And you being on both sides of the world, it must be really interesting. It is. It's so different. It's, you know, the novel is so internal and, it, and you sort of have full control over it. And when you when you enter Hollywood, you have a, a chorus of thousands involved. And, uh, and it is so much about structure and um, and, you know, storytelling in a different way. It's, it's, it's that you don't get that intimacy that you get with a novel. Uh, but what you do get is how much that visuals can tell your story. I could spend five pages describing the studio space and what it, you know, what it looks like and all but you know with a production designer and a director and actress you know it can, they can come to life in a minute so it is it is neat to sort of move from one to the other because they do feel really different well i wish you the best of luck with that with the book itself i know it's a jenna pick for august so congratulations on that thank you we've been talking with megan abbott the new book is the turnout thank you so much for your time today thank you so much for having me Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. If you've ever been the only one in a particular setting, you know how fear-inducing it can be. All you want to do is do your job and hope that nobody really takes any notice that you're different. That kind of feeling is exactly why author Zakia Dalia Harris chose to blend horror into her debut novel about a young black woman in the very white publishing world who's confronted by a threat she didn't see coming. I had the pleasure of talking with Zakia about the other black girl. So when I first saw your book described as Get Out meets The Devil Wears Prada, I thought, well, that's quite a mix. And lo and behold, it really (laughs) turned out to be an apt way to describe this genre-blending novel of yours. Why did you choose to tell this particular story in this way? You know, it really was uh, difficult when I was kind of trying to gather all of my my tools to to pitch this book. And those two felt so apt because I really wanted to get at, um, you know, the the idea that this is set in a workplace and in a kind of psychological uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, just a, a complete place where you are often feeling like you are part of this cult, I will just say, um, and feeling like you are 
stuck. And so getting at the that part of the book and what it's like to just be a cog in the wheel was really important for me through the the Devil Wears Prada comp. But also this book is about a black woman who is <laughs> trying to navigate all those things. There's an extra layer um, with those identities. And so Get Out and Devil Wears Prada uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a head scratcher, I think, at first, but I, it was really important for me to include both of those things because that really is what makes Nella's experience so unique to her. It's so hard to to really get into it any deeper than that because the story is so delightful <laughs> in the way that it, it surprises you. Like, it starts out as this women's fiction kind of thing. She works in a publishing industry you know, there is competition. She is the only black girl in the office, which isn't for, for girls and women who've experienced that. They they definitely know exactly what she's going through. And then this this new girl comes in, this other black girl comes in and you kind of there's this twist and you're kind of like, wait a minute, what is going on here? <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Which I feel like kind of mirrors like in general, I think when you go into a new uh, work environment um, and you're suddenly kind of inundated with all of these these codes and this this jargon and that and and you're in New York on top of it all, um, that was absolutely the feeling I wanted to kind of evoke for readers uh, because it's just a lot. There's there's a lot happening, and when you are this kind of person who feels like you're an outsider, um, especially uh, in a field like publishing where it is really hard to get a job there, um, there are just a lot of feelings of, you know, I'm lucky to be here, but also like, what is going on here? Like, why are you still so white? Why is why does it feel like we're in Mad Men right now, you know? <laughs> and you have characters that are set both in the present day and, and 30 years in the past. Do you think anything has changed in that time for black women in corporate America? I think a little bit has changed. Yes, I don't think enough has changed. But I do know, for me, having worked in publishing, I often thought about Toni Morrison because she also worked in publishing many years earlier before me. And so um, I thought about her and what she had to go through, what she must have had to go to through as a black woman working in publishing um, at that time versus me. And I do feel like conversations, um, I mean, when I was writing this book, though, because I will say, I do feel like a lot of things have changed since I wrote it, <laughs> um, uh, two years ago, even. Um, I think the conversations have gotten even more kind of specific in terms of what um, we are willing to talk about kind of on a whole, especially as publishing has had to deal with this reckoning themselves of being so white uh, with everything happening last year. Um, so I do think that the conversations have gotten better, but I also do know, like, I mean, I've had conversations with other black people um who are older than me, who have also worked in these kind of spaces as the only one. And there are still so many similarities, you know, the sense of, again, being a cog in the wheel, kind of feeling like um, you're kind of a bargaining chip or you're, you're being used for reasons um, that aren't genuine, uh, that you're just kind of a, a diversity um, kind of poster, a walking poster that people can point to and say, oh, hey, we're diverse. And so while the conversation around, um, the meaning of diversity and why it's necessary. I think that has gotten better. I don't know if it's necessarily still where it needs to be right now. 
I think a lot of companies think that if they they hire a, a, a few diverse people and maybe hold a few town halls that that they're addressing the problem. Mm-hmm. But if you could talk to a CEO of one of these companies, what would be the the top thing on your list to say to them like this is what you need to do to change? Mm. Oh. <laughs> I have not to put things. you on the spot at all, you know. <laughs> No, no. Well, it's even hard now because the first thing that I almost always said before um, was the pay. The pay was really, really not great for um, entry-level employees and even really mid-level employees. Um, And I think pay, especially if you're a young person living in New York and you're trying to you know, have a life and and sustain um, a life in New York at the prices that it costs to live there. I think that the pay is something that um, is a is a roadblock. I think especially young people of color who might not have money that they like might not come from money or might not have people um, who can help them um, in case they can't you know pay rent for a month. All of those things are things that. Um, typically, young black people don't have or are less likely to have for various reasons. Um, so I do think that pay is a really big factor. But of course, now that things are virtual, <laughs> um, I think that might be less of a roadblock. We'll see. But the other thing I would say is just opening your bubble. I think the thing that I saw the most, and I, I touch upon this in the book, is the fact that people just hire who they know. They hire people who know people they know, and oftentimes that ends up being white people because a lot of the of the publishing world, it's all kind of related. And so people who are already in the world um, tend to be white, and so if you're saying, oh, I, I need an assistant, um, this agent is uh has an assistant who wants to move to publishing moves to move to editorial great i'll take them and we don't need to look outside of the the kind of uh the mill so to speak and so that i think is a huge thing of really opening up one's mind to the fact that you know it, a lot of people can do this job anyone can really do the job of working and publishing um I think it's just a matter of feeling like you want to train people and give people those tools to to work in these spaces. And talking to you about this, is this why, or I understand more why, you have an epitaph in your book that black history is black horror. Tell us what that means. That quote is from um, a documentary called Horror Noir, uh, and it's said by Tanana Reeves Du. And uh, for me, Horror Noir was a big deal because I saw it right around the time when I started writing this book. And um, I knew that this book would have some kind of some kind of elements because that's always been the thing I've loved. I've loved genre, horror, sci-fi, speculative fiction, all of those things. And so when I saw this documentary, Horror Noir, which explores um, horror and, and Black people in this country from Birth of a Nation to Get Out, um, I just remember thinking it was so brilliant. And I think horror can really show, um, you know, all the ways in which the the human experience, the ways in which humans react to certain things. And I think horror, what horrifies people depends on who the person is. And I think that for Nella, a black woman who has been the only black person and thinks that she's found an ally in Hazel, another black woman at the workplace, it's horrifying when it doesn't go that way. I won't spoil anything, but (laughs) there's horror in that element. And there's also horror, I think, in the microaggressions of, of feeling like every day, you know, you're the only one in this space or one 
one of two people in this space um, and constantly feeling like you're, you're, uh, you might become obsolete, um, that someone else might, another black person might be picked over you, um, that you have to constantly be overperforming in order to, to prove yourself competent. So, so all of those things, the things that um, Nella has to, to face and, and the other black women in this book have to face, um, it was really important for me to tease those things out and explore just how horrifying those things can be for someone like Nella, who is an overthinker and who who is constantly kind of focused on working her way up the corporate ladder. I know I don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to ask you one more quick question. And I guess it's kind of a boilerplate question in these kinds of interviews. But what do you hope readers will get out of it? I hope readers will get just a few more examples of of what it's like to be black in this country. Um, They're not the examples. They are not perfect. The women in my book are not perfect. Uh, they often make some pretty bad decisions. <laughs> um, but I think that's important. I think it's important to see blackness reflected in more than just one kind of way because we're not a monolith. Zakia Dalila Harris, thank you so much for your time today. Her new book is The Other Black Girl. Best of luck with it. And I hope that you open more than just a few minds out there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we chat with best-selling fantasy author Laurel K. Hamilton about her brand new series featuring a police detective who's been touched by angels. There's also demons, witches, and a voodoo priest. Until then, keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.